Welcome to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibell. Literary Speaking is the author's guide to writing and publishing, sharing tips and tricks for aspiring authors. Crystal Lee's expert guests will bring you the latest information on how to write and publish your book into being. Are you ready to tell your story? Here's your host. Welcome to Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal E. Quibble. Today we're speaking with food memoirist Don Lerman. Don is the author of the food memoir, My Fat Dad, a memoir of food, love, and family with recipes. Don is also a board-certified nutrition expert and contributor to the New York Times Well blog, as well as the founder of Magnificent Mummies, a company specializing in personal, corporate, and school-based education. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Good, good. So what inspired you to write a food memoir? Well, I originally set out to write a health book for kids about snacking. Uh, I was working with um, in the preschool system, and all the kids I kept noticed after snack time, you know, the, kid, the, the teachers would give them these snacks, and they were, like, bouncing off the walls. So I said, you know what, let me change the snacks. I'm very into healthy eating and nutrition. I have a degree, and I started cooking with the kids. And in cooking with the kids, I started giving them recipes, and I started sharing my family stories, and they started sharing um, theirs. And then I realized when I started compiling the recipes, I was just going to make like a little cookbook for the kids to take home, that every recipe had a memory, you know, whether it was a recipe Mm -hmm. from my past, a recipe I was making um, that was from my grandmother. Um, So then I just started writing my story down, and it turned into a full-fledged memoir. I started writing. I started with my favorite recipes, and then I started writing, you know, the memory of the recipe, and then mm-hmm. it kind of just went full circle. And I mean, you wrote about your relationship with your parents, their relationship yes. with food, which was extremely different. Where your father was on the side of, you know, he was always dieting, but and kind of failing at it miserably. <laughs> and your mom was like uh, happy to stand over the sink with a can of tuna every day, and that was it. So, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you kind of wrote about how it affected you as well. Did you ever receive any backlash from family or from readers about how they, no. anybody well, first would of all, No, well, growing up with a 450-pound dad, you have tons of material. And my dad <laughs> was also an ad man. He wrote Coke is it, Lego my ego, once you pop, you cannot stop. So, he, you know, he was, he was big Al. He was fat Al. He was, you know, the, always the life of the party, the life of the ad agency. Every week he was on a new diet and he would announce it. This week it's the cabbage soup diet. This week it's the Hampton diet. This week it's the liquid <laughs> diet. So every week there was like a new diet. And whatever diet he had to be on, the entire family had to be on. So it really ruled and dominated our lives. So I would go to bed, you know, from the time I was like five years old, like, you know, reading cookbooks and nutrition books and cutting out recipes um, and for my parents. And my, my mom hated to cook. She's like, don't show me that. I have no interest in food. She grew up with um, a mom who was obsessed with cooking, and that was her whole life was cooking and cleaning. And that was my grandmother, Beauty. And every week I would go to my grandmother's on the weekend and – as I said, we had no food in our house. So when I walked into my grandmother's kitchen, life kind of just transformed. I walked <laughs> into her door and it smelled of kugel and chicken soup. And that just kind of transformed my world. So that, so the two different personalities, you know, really kind of shaped my, my love, you know, my love of food and cooking. And I, and so no, back to your question, 
No, my parents, both my parents loved the book. And yeah. my dad said, you've come a long way, baby, which was his slogan for Virginia Slim. And my mom just, <laughs> mom just my mom's read the book over like a hundred times. She reads it every night before she goes to bed. She reads it everywhere she goes. Her only thing was, she's like, I just wish there were more pictures of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I definitely resonated with you know, the grandmother cooking in the kitchen, I think that's something a lot of grandchildren can relate to is how their grandparents and their grandmothers are like a safe haven for them. Yeah. You know, the craziness. But I really love this one excerpt from the book where you write about your grandmother and how close you were. And I'd love to share it because it's all about her thoughts on food and God and how food really connected you with everybody in your family and how these recipes sort of feel like a religious experience when you're reading yes. them. Yeah. Um, so the excerpt is beauty would say God is in my kitchen, not in temple, which was really upsetting to her good friend and neighbor, the rabbi next door. My grandmother lived in a neighborhood with many religious families. Although beauty never believed in organized religion or going to temple herself. I am a culinary Jew. She would comp- proclaim I honor tradition and those who came before me and I want to pass the history of food on to you I can find my heritage in a bowl of soup I believe in the power of sweet and sour meatballs I believe that when I combine eggs raisins cottage cheese yogurt and baby shells into a kugel I honor my own grandmother I believe that stuffed cabbage connects me to my father whom I miss my bible is recipes that fill your soul and will keep you healthy and nourished for years to come that's so beautiful. Thank you so much. It sounds so nice when you read it. I've never heard anyone read my writing back. <laughs> but yeah, that that's so true. I mean, it was my grandmother who really nourished me. So basically, I grew up with my parents, but every weekend my parents were, you know, really in that whole like me generation of going out and, you know, my dad also used to write for Playboy. So every weekend they were out. So every weekend, luckily for me, I got to spend the weekend with my grandmother, Beauty. And from the time I walked in the door, you know, she'd have a pot of chicken soup, she'd have muffins, baking, a kugel. And then on Saturdays, we would go to the market or, you know, and we would kind of plan what we'd eat for the rest of the week. And she'd make me care packages. She'd be like, don't show this to your daddy, but this is just for you. <laughs> And so she she was always kind of looking at after me and nourishing me through food and and also time spent. And then when I was nine, my my dad got a huge job at McCann Erickson. I mean, he was the real 450 pound Don Draper, uh, and that my whole kind of story revolves around you know McCann Erickson mm-hmm. and that whole like madman era. But my grandmother was so she thought when I moved to New York from Chicago that I was either going to like starve to death or get like thrown into the subway tracks. So the only way she could kind of like control like the situation was she would send me like a recipe card every week with a $20 bill. And she'd say, if I'm making brisket for Papa, you can make brisket for your little sister, April, because April was my younger sister because my parents were never home. So from the age of nine, I totally cooked everything myself from my grandma's $20 bill and recipe card. (laughs) I love that. I have to say, you know, there is really something therapeutic about being in the kitchen, you know, you're preparing a meal for the people you love. Do you find cooking and writing to both combine as a cathartic experience, especially in writing a food memoir? Oh yeah. Well, well, when you're cooking something, my, my, I think my daughter said it best. She's like, when we're cooking your grandmother's kugel, it's like, she's here with us. She's like, Mm -hmm. I only, you know, knew her a couple of years of my life, but she's with us so often because of, through her like recipes and I kind of am able to, when you're cooking, like, especially like a recipe that's passed down, it's like a great time to like pull out pictures and share stories and like the smells take you back to that time with that person. So it's extremely therapeutic. 
Absolutely. Well, everyone, you're listening to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibble, and today we're speaking with food memoirist and New York Times blogger Dawn Lerman. When we come back from the break, we'll discuss how Dawn found her agent, sold her book, and what the process of promoting her food memoir has been like. We'll be right back. Your story is begging to be told, but do you know where to start? Crystal Lee Quibell is dedicated to helping you achieve your book publishing dreams. Go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com, and sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter today. Welcome back to Literary Speaking. I'm talking today with food memoirist Don Lerman. Don is the author of the food memoir, My Fat Dad, a memoir of food, love, and family with recipes. Don, you also write for the New York Times Well blog. How did that come about? Well, before I started writing my memoir, My Fat Dad, as I told you, I was obsessed with kids snacking. You know, I just feel, you know, schools really need to step up. Parents need to step up. You know, my grandmother used to say to me, a snack is not a piece of junk. A snack is like a mini meal with a, you know, with a protein, a fat, or a carb. You know, so I grew up with my grandmother. Snack was, you know, a piece of turkey, a round avocado, you know, cut up vegetables and hummus, all kinds of really delicious things. So I wrote, I was looking at the Well Blog of the Times, and I'm like, I have a great idea for a column. It's about snacking for kids. And that's what originally my book was about. It was called Snacking Outside the Box. It was just a little, like, recipe book for kids, you know, of the how, when, and why's, and where's. And so I wrote to them. I'm like, you know, I have an idea for the snacking column, and let me tell you why I'm qualified to write it. I grew up with a 450-pound father who was on a new diet every week. He was on Atkins, Pritikin. By the time I was nine years old, I was on over 50 diets, even though I was like the scrawniest, skinniest, you know, girl in my class. And my doctor complained that I was underweight. I even spent a month at the fat farm at Duke University. You know, and then it went into my credentials, and then they wrote me back. They're like, well, we're not really interested in the snack blog, but your story of growing up with a fat dad, that's really interesting. Can you write something about that? And that's mm-hmm. kind of how it started. So I wow. started with one blog, and then the response was so great because everyone had a story to share. You know, so it's a very interactive column. If you check it out, it's called Growing Up with a Fat Dad. Hopefully there will be a new post soon, and there's, you know, each one is about a different kind of diet that – um, my dad was on, but it really hit a chord for a lot of people because everyone kind of, so many people, especially in the seventies grew up on these like crazy, you know, fat diets yes. that everyone's like, Oh my God, that's my mother. Oh my God, that's my father. <laughs> oh my God, that's me. So I think it just, it just kind of really opened up a dialogue about food and dieting and health and nutrition and, you know, a whole kind of generation that's kind of, that was kind of really immersed in like the diet sodas and the tab and, you know, the snack wells and all that kind of oh stuff. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I remember, I'm, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know what you're talking about when you say the cabbage soup diet. I think right, everybody exactly. did that. <laughs> Everybody right. did the cabbage soup diet. Yeah, and then it was like the ice cream one and the hot dog diet. And right, and, like... now it's, and right, and now it's the paleo one and the gluten-free. So like every yeah. year there seems to be like a new fad. And whatever the fad was at the time, my dad did it, and if he did it, we did it, you know, so <laughs> – there's so many memories about that. So that's kind of what the, you know, the the column turned into. It kind of is like different little like vignettes from different diets and different parts of my life. It's a different it's different from the memoir. Um, but you know, there's similar aspects. There's some crossover. Now, is that how you came to find your literary agent? Did they approach you or did you send queries out? Um, once I once I had once I 
wrote about 10 blogs, then I started getting a following. Then I was really trying to build my Facebook and my Twitter and all my social media platforms. And then I didn't approach, and I had, at that point I had an agent, and I didn't, we didn't approach any publishers until I had a, you know, a large enough platform, and I, had a, I spent a year writing the proposal for the book. It, took, it was harder to write the proposal than the book, so it kind of, you know, <laughs> was, you know, it was what the book was about. It was a summary of, you know, of what each chapter was. Um, it, had re- it had all the recipes. Um, it had, you know, it had all my qualifications. It had what book this was similar to. So that was a really, really big undertaking was writing the proposal. But I think for anyone who wants to sell a book, writing your proposal is the most important thing. It really helps you to define where the common thread throughout your book. And also when you get stuck, you can just refer back to your proposal and say, okay, I'm, I'm I can go to chapter 10 and write about this because exactly that was so helpful but also for the publishers too they really want to see you know what Mm. what is the book going to look like who's going to read the book what is it similar to um, who's following you what's your audience so I think it's really important to kind of lay out all the groundwork before you approach anyone well, and when you're in the proposal, too, I know they ask you to compare your work, and they yes. often say, please don't compare to a New York Times bestseller or something that's very common, right? Because many people use, you know, Eat, Pray, Love or Wild, and um, they want you to pick something that's comparable to your work, but also, and that's popular, but not so popular that it, it kind of goes out of the realm of what you're doing. So did you sort of have a really good idea of, the comparable titles in your genre for that? Um, I don't think I had a really good idea of it. I mean, I thought it was similar to a lot of Ruth Reichel's writing, um, mm-hmm. but I really didn't focus so much on that. I really kind of focused on what my story was. Yeah. And then also, too, did you have to, I mean, most proposals include a marketing plan. So, yes. you know, for that aspect, you know, you share your following and, and how you plan on promoting the book. How long did you end up working on the book before you pitched to publishers and editors with your agent? Um, I, I didn't work on the book, so I only had the proposal. So I sold mm-hmm. the book on a proposal. But I had several New York Times stories already published. So it kind of showed, you know, the style of the writing. But and and again, as I said, the proposal was so detailed. The proposal was about about 50 pages. You know, it had Mm -hmm. it had the summary. It had the overview. The marketing section was took forever to do. That was that was the most difficult part because I'm not really a marketing person. Um, But I really kind of explored like where I was. I went to Syracuse. I was an alumni there. I went to Integrative Nutrition. I was an alumni there. So I kind of really like looked at all the places I could possibly, you know, promote the book and who I knew. Mm -hmm. Um, So that took a long time. And I think the um, publishers really look at that. They do. Did you find once the book became published in terms of promotion, you know, what did you find were the most successful ways to promote the book? I think it's ongoing. I think you, all, you mm-hmm. know, when the book comes out, I think you almost have to keep, you have to keep doing it. It's kind of, yes. it's like the little train that could, you have to kind of do something every day because it'll be on the top of Amazon. But if you don't do anything for a couple of weeks, it kind of goes right back down. So mm-hmm. I've reached out to bloggers, radio shows. I've been writing a lot for other newspapers as well as the times. Um, you just kind of have to keep going, getting the word out there. I've, it's, um, mine is a Jewish memoir, so I've worked with the Jewish Book Council, which is a really great resource for Jewish authors. Oh, that's um, good to know. Yeah, they send you out on a tour around the country. 
So you go and you audition, you do your two-minute elevator speech, and then different, like, temples and organizations bid on you, and then they kind of send you out to different locations, and then they kind of set everything up for you, local media. So that's a really great resource for authors. That's fantastic. And it doesn't have to be a Jewish memoir. It's only if, you're, if you are a Jewish author, you can be in it. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic, though. That's a great way to promote. And and I think, too, also, like you said, you know, you're always going to be promoting your work if you want it to sell and you want to stay on top. Exactly. You have to make it almost like a full-time job. It is a <laughs> right? full-time. It, is a, it really is a full-time job. You know, every day you spend hours, like, approaching different people, going to your local library, wherever you can make a connection, you have to make the connection, your local bookstores. Um, you know, you go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, you have to kind of keep like finding, you know, new and inventive ways to promote. And it's, a, it's definitely a lot of work, <laughs> but it's worth and, it. Well, with all of that being said, did you happen to hit any roadblocks along the way to getting My Fat Dad published? I wouldn't look at it as roadblocks. I think it was a very long process. It mm-hmm. definitely was not an over. It wasn't like I'm going to write a book. One of my friends yes. she's like, oh, now that you, now she's like, oh my god, now that you wrote a book, I have an idea. It's going to be a New York Times bestseller. Let's write it together tomorrow. I'm like, <laughs> I think I started my book like six years ago. You know, so it's exactly. you know, so I I say it's more just slow and steady. First, get the idea. Then you could turn. You know, what I tell a lot of people is you could just start as a blog. You don't have to write a whole book. Start, you know, start an idea, write it as a blog, try and get people engaged because the publishers really like that. And a lot of people get picked up from publishers just from their blogs. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I mean, even just taking the chance to reach out to the New York Times about your blog, you know, that led to you having a regular spot and that leads to a huge following and people really connecting, being able to connect with your work and with you also on social media. And that's so helpful. And I think really important for aspiring authors to try and get your work out there as much as possible. Yeah. And I, what I was going to say is I think Social media um, gives people a chance who would have not had a chance before because anybody mm-hmm. can be a social media star. So if you, you know, if you create a blog and you, if you go, as we talked about on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram, and you connect with other people, it's like going to a party where all the kind of players you want are in one room. Mm-hmm. You know, it just takes, it just takes a yes. little bit more weeding out. But if you kind of put the en- time and energy and research, you could definitely find the people, and you kind of connect with the people who are writing similar things to you. And there's all these different resources for women, especially. I'm sure there are for men too. I just don't know. Blog her, and there's just there's many blog conferences, and there's so many different ways to connect with authors. And people could also self-publish now, you know, which they couldn't before. So I think if you have a story, first start with like, what is your story? Is it something you have to write? And if you don't have to write it. You don't need to write it, but usually it's something that's, you know, that's in your, that's like kind of in your soul for many years. And then you finally just have to get it out and share your story. Yes. Do you, what would sort of be the best advice you've received about writing that you would want to impart on anyone looking to write a memoir or share family recipes and write a food memoir? Just write. You know, don't don't think of just yeah, just don't think about the result. Is don't write for the result. Write because you really want to share this, and then don't worry about where it's going to lead. You know, it's let it come naturally. It, as I said, it could start as a blog. It could it could start as a gift for your family. It could start as anything. But if you don't, you anyone can have an idea. But if you don't put it on paper and you don't get it out there, it's just going to be an idea. So the only way to turn like you know your idea into reality is to to get it out there. 
I think that's great advice because I know one of uh, the authors we had on in December, Lisa Goich, she wrote a book called 14 Days, and it was about her mom's last 14 days and caring for her. And the book was inspired by her Facebook post. She was writing posts to share what was happening with family and friends. And then that became the book. And it's done really well. So, I mean, there's so many opportunities to start sharing your work and for it to turn into something. It's true. I started sharing my story too, just on Facebook. When when it kind of turned, well, first it started on Facebook, you know, with snacking recipes, and then my grandmother, who I talk about, she got sick, and my mother would say, "The only thing that's going to make her better is hearing your voice." Right, right. Tell her story. So every day I would write a little bit, and then I'd read her Aww. like the stories, all the things I loved about her on the phone, and then I started sharing them on Facebook, and other people started sharing as well. So I think Facebook is a great way to start. Just start sharing your stories. Mm-hmm. And then from Facebook, you know, kind of turn it into a blog. And don't worry about the end result of a book. It could be, you know, if you write one page a day, you know, in a year, that's 365 pages. Exactly. You know, I think every every little bit counts, especially when it comes to writing a book. You have to really be dedicated and, and write something, anything, every day. Right. I used to, I had the most amazing English teacher in 11th grade. And everyone who came in, he's like, by the end of the year, you're going to write an amazing story. And everyone's like, well, I don't know what we're going to write about. He's like, it doesn't matter. And he's like, as long as that pen goes to the paper. And we'd sit, we'd have these two-hour seminars, and he'd, and he'd be like, look up at the ceiling. What do you see? And people would be like, nothing. Okay, then write nothing a hundred times. And then he's like, well, what else do you see? And we just keep writing and writing and writing. If it was like the white wall, the paint chipping, whatever it was, he's like, just keep writing. The only way to write is to write. Mm -hmm. And then you never know what's going to come until you start. But if you don't try, nothing's going to happen. It's like going to the gym. Like you could get a membership, but if you don't put your foot (laughs) in that door, you're not going to get the results. No, exactly. And I don't know if you find this, but I find sometimes even when I don't want to and I sit down, the first couple pages might be complete, like nonsense, crap, gibberish. Yes. But then it, it's almost like it clicks and then things start to flow. So it kind of exactly. takes a little it bit. Ta- it, ta- it definitely takes a little it's like, it's like It's exactly like what we said, like when you go on a run at the beginning, like you, you can't do it and it's hard and it's difficult. And then as you're, you, you start picking up the pace and it becomes more rhythmic, you know, it's it's easier. So you, it's it's practice too. It's a skill. Mm-hmm. It's a skill, and the only way to develop the skill is by doing it. When I haven't ridden for a couple of weeks, it's hard. You know, it's harder. It takes me a little while to get into it. And there's been weeks where I've been writing every single day, and then I can't stop writing. So it's kind of like going again. I keep using the comparison. It's like working out. When you stop, it's hard. You know, it takes a while to get into it. But once you're into it, it kind of has a life of its own. You know, the endorphins mm-hmm. kind of kick in. <laughs> exactly. So out of, you know, everything, all the writing and the learnings and teachings that you kind of impart in My Fat Dad, a memoir of food, love, and family with recipes, what's the main message you would want people to take away from the book? Um, Well, one of the main things I would love people to take away from the book is I hope that my story inspires families to create memories around food, you know, happy memories. Um, and I hope people see food is more than just the, you know, the macronutrients, the protein, the fats, and the carbs. Um, it's about, you know, the, the stories, who you were with when you ate it, the people, the memories, the smell, and the, and the recipes that keeps you connected through the different generations. 
So every mm-hmm. time I cook, you know, as my daughter said, whenever I'm cooking my grandmother's chicken soup, even though my grandmother's gone, she's with us, and her memory is living on. It's, an, it's a teaching opportunity. And for my daughter, she's vegan. So one of our her favorite, before she went vegan, she's only 11, one of her favorite recipes was my grandmother's kugel. Now, I kind of redid her kugel using um, brown rice noodles and yogurt instead of sour cream. <laughs> now my daughter's yeah. gone a step fur- further, and she has her own twist. She uses cashew cheese. So it's kind of like the recipe is just a blueprint, you know, of mm-hmm. a memory. And then everyone can kind of put their own twist on it. But it does keep families and traditions alive. I love that. The recipe is a blueprint. I love that. Well, Dawn, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom and your work with us. Uh, I loved the book. I just think thank it's you fantastic. So much. Thank you. Everyone, Dawn Lerman can be found online at dawnlerman.net. That's D A W N. L-E-R-M-A-N dot net. You can order a copy of My Fat Dad, a memoir of food, love, and family with recipes on Amazon now. Please make sure that you review all the books we talk about on Literary Speaking as that helps our authors a great deal. Want to win a free copy? Visit my website at crystalleequible.com and sign up for the newsletter. Winners will be notified weekly on our Facebook page. Please tune in next week for more tips and tricks on how to write and publish your book. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals.